You're listening to Around Comics, episode 160. listening to another Monday edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour plus of comic book news, information, and entertainment. This is also our Christmas Eve episode, and it is also the last of our Month of Heroes programming. And if you've been listening over the last month, you've heard from such creators and industry professionals as Derek Robertson, Brian Polito, Tim Seeley, Denny O'Neill, and Roy Thomas. And today we will conclude our two-part conversation with Roy Thomas. That'll be coming up in just a moment. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to uh, talk about the Month of Heroes a little bit. It has been in cooperation with the Comics Podcast Network, which we are a member of. And if you'd like to check out other great comics podcasts, you can go to Comics Podcasts. Dot com and the Hero Initiative, which you should know by now, is a charitable organization which benefits veteran creators in times of extreme need. And uh, Roy Thomas, in his own words, will tell you a little bit more about that at the end of our interview. But I will let you know that you can go to theheroinitiative.org, or you can actually go to aroundcomics.com, and we have a PayPal link set up on the homepage. If you're looking for other forms of payment or interested and knowing more about the Hero Initiative, just go to the Hero Initiative's website and it has all the information that you'll need. I uh, did get a message from the folks at Hero this week and they are very happy with the outpouring of support from Around Comics and Comics Podcast Network listeners. There have been a lot of 3 5 and $10 donations as well as donations that were a lot more than that. And believe me, every dollar does count. So thank you to our listeners and and listeners of all the other podcasts out there, you guys have made a huge difference in the lives of some veteran creators in need this holiday season. So thank you very much. I want to uh, give a special thank you to uh, Matt Ricketts and Patrick Claffey, who I got emails about their donations this week. So thank you, fellas. We really appreciate it. In addition to the second part of our Roy Thomas conversation, the Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall is here to give us a preview of the week's new collected edition releases, and Tom Caters gives us previews for this week's single edition releases. Jeremy Mullins is back to talk web comics. The quiet panelologists at work continue their A to Z of British comics. John Mayo goes inside the numbers of Diamond's top 100 trade paperbacks in his market report. And Tom Caters is back as the answer man. All of that and more is next on Around Comics. Oh, and hey, folks, uh, I did mention that this is our Christmas Eve episode, but make sure and come back tomorrow as we have a little surprise for Christmas. So that episode will be available tomorrow morning, and happy holidays from everyone at Around Comics. I'm a happy dreamer. I believe in love.
Last week was the first part of our two-part conversation with comics legend Roy Thomas. If you haven't heard that interview, I'd certainly suggest going back and grabbing it. It is Around Comics episode 159. And we're going to jump right into the second part here. It is myself and Tom Caters. And we're going to start off talking about writers who came out of fandom. So here is Roy Thomas, part two. Well, I think it's uh, you'd reference sort of a you know new wave of writers coming through, and uh, lately I've been I've been going through and I've been reading every issue of the Justice League of America because uh, my girlfriend's at uh, grad school right now, so I have a lot of free time, and I've been writing a blog about it. And one of the things I sort of noticed as I've been reading it is, uh, you know, I, I read all the Gardner Fox issues, and then I read all the Denny O'Neill issues, and it's sort of interesting to see as new writers come onto a book when you're really focusing on sort of you know, new artists and creators, when you start to notice people that were fans start to, you know, come into the series and they make things a little, you know, Steve Englehart comes onto the book and all of a sudden it takes a different feeling. It gets a little bit more intricate. Because uh-huh. it, it seems just a little bit more like they've come in with something, not, not that the original creators didn't have a love for the characters, but obviously these people come in with like a new rush of energy, you know, yeah, I'm a yeah. fan of well, these characters. With Gardner, it was basically, you know, a job, a job he'd been doing for some years and was quite good at it. He could, he could enjoy it, but, you know, he didn't think of it, again, as a fanish thing, and neither did, I guess, Denny was the second writer, and he didn't either really because he had never really read Justice League much. You know, he hadn't really been that much of a comic yeah. reader until he got in, and then he started working, you know, for Marvel right away. Uh, so he hadn't ever he hadn't been a Justice League reader, but what he brought to it was some of the things that he picked up over the years um, as a journalist for several years, for example, you know, uh, as a uh, and then as somebody who uh, did a lot of writing for Marvel and and therefore was somewhat familiar with what Stan liked and things, and he could bring all his own sensibilities. Then after that, you had Mike Friedrich. Well, he was another comic. He was a little more dyed in the wool comic fan, and then you had. Uh, uh, Steve Englehart, well, he was somebody, too, who had worked for Marvel for years, so he brought his particular sensibilities, which were honed at Marvel Comics, uh, you know, for uh, for several years. So, yeah, everybody everybody brought to that book what, uh, you know, to something a little bit different to the table, and each comic book series that one, uh, it, it's sort of a Rorschach test, really, for the person who writes it and draws it. Uh, one of the things I love about it, too, is uh, you read the letters column and you see letters from... Martin Pascal, and then a, two years later, you see Martin Pascal has written an issue. Well, that was one one of the places they were uh, were looking. I remember that, that couple of weeks I worked for DC. I, I, I was very confused when Mort Weisinger, who is for whom I was working on, as the editorial assistant on the Superman title, introduced me to the publisher, Erwin uh, Donenfeld, the co-publisher of DC. The only time I ever met him in person. Introduced me and said that uh, basically said, oh, you know, uh, Roy, he, Roy comes from the fanzines. I mean, it sounds a little like Mars or somewhere, you know. <laughs> he comes from the fanzines. But, and it was interesting, and it just showed that the fanzines, which were a little like the letters page in a certain sense, except they knew it was an even more elite group in the sense of being older and a little less typical even than the letter writers, who are already less typical simply because they took pen to paper or typewriter to paper and sent something in. So, we, you know, we were, we were all bringing... Uh, different things there. Uh, when you had mentioned reading uh, Moby Dick, uh, it brought me to uh, something you've been working on recently, which is the uh, Marvel Illustrated adaptations of uh, sort of famous novels, uh, which, I, you know, going back into the history of comics, you know, everyone sort of has, 
you know, if they didn't experience it firsthand, knows about, you know, the illustrated stories, you know, of like Moby Dick and uh, things like that. Uh, as a writer, is it interesting to sort of, you get a chance to sort of uh, adapt all these great novels, you know, uh, is that sort of a thrill? Is that uh, like a writer's, is it a huge challenge to you to have to yes, go through all these I books? Always wanted, I always wanted to do something like that. I mean, I was kind of disappointed in the 70s when uh, Marvel had a series like that, and I had moved in a pretty couple of years out to Los Angeles, so I didn't really get in on that. I was kind of disappointed to see things like the Iliad and other things that I especially loved invited, adapted, and I wasn't really in on it. I never tried real hard to get in on it. I didn't want to... I was pretty busy, so I didn't have a lot of time, so uh, there was no sense chasing after it. Uh, maybe they would have uh, welcomed me if had I, you know, wanted to do it. But, uh, and Stan and I, I think once or twice, I, could, I, I seem to recall our discussing the idea sometime it would be fun to do a sort of a classic illustrated kind of line mm -hmm. in the early 70s. So, you know, we never really got around to it. Uh, Marvel had tried things like that back in the past, or as timely, and uh, it came close. Once in a, a weird way, we almost adapted Jaws before it was a movie. <laughs> we, there was some sort of deal going that kind of fell through. That would have been interesting because it would have probably been a real publishing phenomenon even a couple of years before Star Wars was. Yeah. Well. Uh, but uh, so it's, it's really a thrill to be able to do that. I was a classic illustrated reader. I came through the Iliad, which was my favorite work of literature through classics illustrated. So to be able to do them either to adapt works that I love very much, like I'm the one that kind of talked into doing the Iliad before the Odyssey and into doing Moby Dick early on. The other choices uh, have all been, you know, things that were their ideas, but that's, but a lot of them are the same ones I would have wanted to do, and if there's something that isn't, well, that's just the extra thrill of, or the, uh, the challenge of taking a work that uh, maybe I never got around to reading, and, uh, you know, I have an excuse to, uh, to read it, get paid for it, and adapt it and try to pass some of that feeling on to somebody else. Well, I imagine it's, in some ways, uh, you're not going to get any angry letters from Last of the Mohican fans sort of <laughs> yelling at you about continuity errors. I might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a different thing, though. If I do something wrong, you never can tell. I mean, I don't know because I don't see any letters. They don't have letters pages. Yeah. People aren't exactly encouraged to write letters to comics now because they mostly don't have letters pages anymore. And that discourages people from writing letters if you know that nothing will ever be seen in print. Um, so I... I, I don't know if, uh, you know, but, but, but somewhere out there there will be some scholar that will take, take us to task or this or that. I'm always aware of things that, you know, minor things that go wrong. And one of the nice things is we're going to be able to correct a few of those things in the uh, the graphic novel collections of them, you know, that will be coming out, which uh, are really the driving force behind the Marvel Illustrated series anyway is the idea of the collection, you know. It's going to surprise anybody that they're going to collect each one of them into a graphic novel when they're well, done. Well, you can uh, undermine the respectability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, these are probably fairly respectable uh, comics, uh, but uh, you know, but that's because the of the material that is, is uh, that that is being adapted. But uh, we're we're trying to just you know have fun with them. We're not yeah. trying to treat them as uh, holy objects. I'm just trying to figure out well, you know, what is it that should be said about this book? I'm with Moby Dick. You've got a hundred. I've got a hundred thirty pages to tell a story that. Uh, Admittedly, with a lot of digressions into what whales are really like, uh, in Moby Dick, you know, you've got 600, 700 pages, depending on the edition. And so, obviously, a lot of stuff has to be left out, but it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge to, to find what is the essence of the, that you need in order to tell the, uh, the story. In, in another book, like The Picture of Dorian Gray, that's only 200 pages, if we do the same 
adaptation length, uh, and we are, uh, then that's fairly easy because you can put practically everything in there except the internal monologue. Sure. Uh, but of course, the internal monologues are one of the main part of uh, yeah. the picture of Dorian Gray. Those can't be illustrated, but uh, you know, you find a way with swing captions to put in some of the thoughts and so forth, and you just try to treat, treat every book a little bit different. So some of them will have more captions, some of them will have more action, some of them will have more panels. Uh, each one is kind of a new adventure. Well, my introduction to uh, to your work, I, I kind of took a, an interesting route to get there. I uh, grew up in the in the '80s and became a, an X Men fan when Paul Smith and Chris Claremont were working on the X Men, and then kind of went backwards through the series and and discovered John Byrne and, and Cockrum, and then and then eventually got back to before the giant size X Men one came out and fell in love with your work with Neil Adams on the X Men and. Well, you know, I, w- I would go and read them in chunks, and you know, yeah. that was a time when there were when there were no, you know, like reprints at the time. Right. So I would go and it's like, okay, I'll read, uh, I'll go and track down X Men, you know, thir- one thirty two through one forty or whatever, and I would read them in chunks, kind of backwards like that. And then I got to yours, but I hear that the, it was kind of an interesting time with the X Men uh, before before Neil Adams came on. That that title was really kind of hanging on for for dear life. It had never, it, even under Stan and Jack, it had really been one of the least popular Marvel titles. But I think that it sank when they left, when first Jack left and then Stan left. I mean, the rest of us tried to, to keep it going. But somehow or other, we just weren't inspired to, uh, to do it, um, you know. And I think, uh, you know, Neil coming on gave it kind of a shot in the arm. And this, I think sales picked up. And if it hadn't died just when it did, it probably wouldn't have. It obviously sold well enough that they brought it back as reprints right away. And they didn't generally do that. So it showed that the, I think that the, the sales had improved, but uh, Martin Goodman, the publisher, didn't give it long enough to, uh, you know, to uh, to really catch hold. I, and I certainly never felt it was become a big hit when Neil and I did. I knew it was attracting a lot of attention, but that wasn't quite the same thing, you know. I, and I, I I'm not surprised that it was improving in sales, but I and I could sort of tell that off and on from seeing sales figures. But I knew at the same time it hadn't become some smash runaway hit. As far as when it became a hit at Marvel, no, I wasn't paying much attention. It, it sort of sneaked in there. Um, I probably thought it was uh, at least a reasonable success probably before it became a smash runaway hit. But then suddenly to look around and find that it you know, was more popular than Spider-Man for some time, well, that, that was kind of surprising. Now, uh, your, your time at Marvel, going into uh, the early '70s, you were kind of at the at the forefront of bringing horror comics back to Marvel, and you guys were churning out a lot of comics and really expanding into the marketplace. What was it like trying to to bring back the the horror genre in mainstream comics? Well, I, I was in favor of bringing them back uh, because I, I I think all genres should be rep- represented in comics, and horror things horror comics were one thing that. Not that many media did that well, and comics do them rather well. I didn't care that much for writing them myself, so I generally gave them over to other people. I wasn't that interested in writing about werewolves or vampires, so I I plotted the first Tomb of Dracula from Little Ideas Fan, and I made up the werewolf by night, and I co-made up things like Man-Thing and several others, but I never wanted to particularly write them. I would always turn them over to other people. In later years, I you know, got a little more interested in writing some of them, but uh, uh, I just wanted to see them done because I thought... Marvel needed to expand, and you can't expand by just doing an infinite number of superheroes. You have to expand in other directions. So when suddenly we could do horror characters, I wanted to see everything. I wanted to see the anthologies, and I wanted to see continuing characters, because in the old days of um, horror comics, in the 50s, early 50s, 
the horror comic had been almost entirely an anthology field, you know, very few continuing characters. Uh, Marvel's strength, though, was the continuing characters. So while DC's strength was uh, Joe Orlando's, you know, books and, the, and uh, House of Mystery and the things that took off after that, Marvel's strength was the continuing characters, Dracula, Werewolf by Night, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we had a few of the anthologies, too, but they never amounted to as much. But I just wanted to see us do a little bit of everything. I wanted, to, I, would have, I wanted to see more kitty humor comics, you know, uh, which the comic book field has increasingly been in danger of losing. I was, you know, we all want to do westerns. You know, we've, you know I just want to see a, a wide variety of, uh, of genres, of which the superhero is a prominent one, but not the only one. Sure. And you're also a big fan of, of sword and sorcery, and you brought that to a lot of fans with Conan. Oh, I'm not a fan of sword and sorcery. I like Robert E. Howard. I, I, I don't read that much stuff otherwise. Okay. It's very specific sword and sorcery. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's sort of simple because I like his writing. I think there are other writers from time to time that I uh, that I that I like here and there. But uh, Howard was one of the was was to me uh, far and away the best. I mean, I don't follow. Uh, you know, I never followed uh, much much else except Robert E. Howard. Is, in that feel, I tried to read everything of his, some good, some bad, but the best of it was wonderful, and uh, the other stuff interested me in, you know, in, in sort of fits and starts. But, but, but it was another field that I thought we could expand comics into, because it was growing in the 60s in paperback books, so why shouldn't we get into it? The readers were telling us to get into it, too, so it didn't take too much, uh, <laughs> it didn't take too much uh, brain power to figure out that we ought to give it a try. Now, Conan really an iconic character, and, and Marvel had a huge part uh, of growing that character into what he is today. And you actually worked oh, on uh, Conan the Destroyer, the movie, didn't you? Yeah, it was a weird experience, but uh, I was there. <laughs> I was wild about the final product, but we, you know, I, I think it would have been a little better if they actually filmed the scripts that, that we wrote in early on. But uh, you know, but at least it got made. You know, it, it, it should have been better, but. It, I didn't like either of the movies that terribly much. I liked Arnold fine, but I didn't care much that much for either of the movies. The first was a little more serious, but I think that was good, but I didn't care much for either of them in the film. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, was it Wilt Chamberlain in the second one? <laughs> oh, I didn't think that was great casting. <laughs> <laughs> was little... But he wasn't what was primarily wrong with the movie. I mean, the movie, with or without him, the movie was just not very good. The only really good thing about it besides Schwarzenegger himself was Grace Jones, whom Jerry Conway suggested as for that uh, part we had made up, and that, and I think that was good. But uh, other than that, I don't think I, I think that uh, the movie was just not as good as our original, uh, you know, as, as our original screenplay for it. Um, I guess one, uh, you know, one last question I had is, uh, you've been working on a book called Anthem, which sort of deals with um, uh, World War II characters. Do, what is it about? You seem to be sort of, at least in my mind, and because I, I like certain books of yours, you know, a lot, you're always sort of tied into me with the, the Golden Age characters and with the World War II characters. Is there something about those characters um, that has made them last through time that makes still makes them interesting? Well, originally it was the characters themselves, the Marvel and DC and other Golden Age characters, but I, I was always, you know, I, I was... I grew up just after World War II, so it was always kind of this thing just very vaguely in the background. You know, I knew people who had been in the war, or I'd hear about the war, and I'd see old comic books from the war, and see old movies from the war, or hear about them and so forth. And so I, I just maintained an interest uh, historically in that period. You know, I mean, war being one of the few things mankind really does well. And uh, the idea of this whole world sort of at war for the first and only time, even compared to the First World War, 
which is so-called, um, was was intriguing. The idea of the whole planet practically be involved in this war, and then uh, and I and I'd like to do different takeoffs. You know, you find a writer. Almost all writers have some theme. They find some particular kind of genre they like to write in. Uh, mine, I suppose, are two: one superheroes, and one is. Uh, things about World War II, and this is kind of a combination. Anthem I've never had a chance to really get into because, you know, originally it was done for a Spanish publisher. I'm still using old uh, plots that I did then. I haven't really had the chance or the frequency to get into it, and, and you know, I, I sort of like to go back and rewrite all the issues and do them a little differently, but I but I really haven't had a chance to uh, get into them. And right now the, the, uh, the publisher is kind of on hiatus because he had some... Uh, economic problems, not much related to comics, but personal things, and therefore has had to kind of pull back. and And he, we've had the fifth issue of Anthem ready for you know a couple of months now, several months now, and uh, going to be out soon. But he's got to get things straight. But I still just don't have the time to do it as a regular book as I would like to. Uh, ideally, I, I could really get into it, but I think unless I was unless I was doing something that I do every month or two, it's very hard for me. I to get interested in, in, in just doing a one-shot 20-page comic or, you know, a couple of issues. I like to do a series that lasts a while. Mm -hmm. the, the novels in Marvel Illustrated are a little bit uh, different because there, of course, you've got a story that already has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end when it comes in. But other than that, my, I'm geared toward the idea of a monthly comic. You take over something and you do it for year on end. I mean, I did Conan for exactly 10 years in the color comics and uh, then did a little bit more in the black and white after that. And even in comics, I mean, I did about, about 60, 70, 80 issues of All-Star Squadron and the 70 issues of Avengers. I like to do something, you know, for a long time and really sink my teeth into it. Now, you're you're not just a you know, comic creator. You're really a, a comic historian in, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, at, at both Marvel and DC, uh, at, at Marvel, we're seeing uh, the, the Invaders are coming back. At, uh, at DC, uh, folks like Jeff Johns are really diving into the history of the JSA. Uh, do you get uh, contacted by any of the folks at the comic companies today about the history of these characters? I did a few years ago until they talked to me once. That kind of cured them. Most <laughs> <laughs> of them, I'm simply not interested in being, you know, I'm not interested in, in uh, you know, being, consult being consulted or, you know, being homaged or, or, or having something dedicated to me. If, I, if I'm not writing it myself or involved in some way myself, I'm just, at this stage, I'm just not interested. I'll read the old comics, but I'm not interested in reading a new comic. I mean, you know, I, I, I have no interest in the invaders coming back unless I, you know, I want to write the invaders. <laughs> I, I did it a couple of years ago. If somebody else is writing it, I have no more interest, uh, you know, than if it was the adventures of Nellie the nurse, you know. But I should mm -hmm. mention, I, during the, what, eight, nine years or whatever it was that I did not write Conan, I did not buy a single issue of Conan the Barbarian <laughs> or Savage Sword that I didn't have. I mean, as, and as soon as I started writing it, I went back and I picked up the back issues so I could see what what I should do, but in between that, I didn't buy a single one. If they had sent them to me, I would simply have, you know, tossed them in the corner and wouldn't have read them. We had an interesting discussion with Denny O'Neill a couple weeks ago, and he recounted a story that, that he and Frank Miller would go out uh, for dinner with each other, and this is after Denny had taken over on Daredevil, and I, I think he had asked Frank what he thought of the series, and Frank uh, told him that he had come to a decision that he was either going to have to stop reading Daredevil, or they were going to have to stop going to dinner with each other. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't have that. I have nothing against the people who are... You know, uh, well, I do against the uh, one or two uh, 
competitors to see so that I kept, felt kind of froze me out of things. Yes, very, very definitely. I, I have made a secret of, secret of that. But as far as the people who write and draw, you know, these comics in general, I, you know, I don't have anything against them. I, I, I don't think that I'd, I... But if I went out, I wouldn't want to particularly talk about it. I mean, I, you know, I remember the, the JSA editor years ago tried to get me on a panel or two, and I, we were one. Uh, you know about the JSA, and I and I finally told conventions we got together. I said, don't even mention the possibility. It's not because it's not a matter of personal hostility. I just don't want to get up there and have them say, have them saying to me, "Oh, you should be reading the JSA and this and that." You know, I don't need somebody to tell me what I should be reading. <laughs> uh, last question before before we uh, um, finish up here. Uh, your life has pretty pretty much been tied to comics. You know, the majority of your life as, as a fan and then writer, editor, and what you're doing now with with Alter Ego and, and Marvel Illustrated. If can you even imagine not having worked in comics? Is there another field that you would have worked in if not comics? Well, there are, of course, fields that I did work in. I mean, I was a teacher for some years, although I didn't care much for it. Uh, I would probably have become a college uh, teacher, you know, because I was about... I did have a fellowship to study foreign relations and um, that I turned down when I went into comics in 1965. So I suppose, you know, I would have become... Uh, I guess I could have, you know, been a... I don't know, been in some other way in foreign relations. I think I would have probably drifted into teaching college. Uh, maybe it's like Woody Allen, you in case of war, I'm a hostage. I don't know. Uh, that, that would have been my idea of foreign relations, probably. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's just possible to imagine, you know, other careers. Uh, actually, if I, if I had, uh, if I'd had the money a year or two earlier, I can't even imagine it now, but if I'd had the, the money about a year or two before I got the job, both the fellowship in foreign relations and the job offer at DC, um, I applied for and was accepted to study Egyptology at the uh, University of Chicago's Oriental Institute uh, because I was just, and I didn't have a lot of knowledge about Egyptology, but I had some interest and I had was taking lessons in uh, hieroglyphics and so forth for, uh, from a uh, uh, fairly eminent uh, scholar in, uh, in St. Louis. And if I'd had the, and I was accepted, had I had the money to uh, to go to the University of Chicago, I would probably, you know, I'd be writing books about, and again, I'd probably still be teaching in college or something, but university, but I, I would have been a, uh, a scholar, you know, and maybe digging around and getting a curse put on me in some Egyptian tomb somewhere. I don't know. A real-life Carter Hall. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I would never have, I, I don't think that if, if that had happened, I don't think the idea of working in comics, it's not that I've might not have continued to read comics to some extent, but I don't think I would ever have, uh, you know, left it. I, I would probably have gotten embroiled in it, and, and I wouldn't have dumped that just to go into comics then. So, you know, it's, it's all these weird little things, you know. It's just that nobody came forward to suddenly give me several thousand dollars a year to live on while I was going to school. If I'd had wealthy parents, wealthier parents at that time, probably, I, you know, I would have, uh, I would have, I'd now be an Egyptologist, I suppose. Well, we are we are glad that you weren't an Egyptologist. We certainly well, can't yeah, I, uh, imagine. I might have written some good books there, you know, in Egyptology. <laughs> Nobody would have read them, but I'd have written them. <laughs> Well, we can't imagine comics without you, and it's been it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And uh, um, this was all made possible because this is our month of heroes at Around Comics that uh, we're bringing a, a series of interviews with people that are involved with the Hero Initiative, which is a a fantastic charity that benefits veteran creators in need. And, and Roy, you've been involved with Hero for quite some time. So, can you, in your own words, talk about the Hero Initiative and its importance to veteran creators? 
the HERE initiative, which was started, of course, being called ACTOR, which wasn't a great name for it, but it was a great organization from the beginning. Uh, it was created to be a, a, a charity for uh, comic book creators, especially those who had uh, been in the field at a time before there were royalties. And, you know, there was a time, you know, when it was harder to... Uh, to imagine laying back any money while you were writing comics. I mean, you might be able to make a day-to-day living, but people weren't able to make enough money to, um, to be able to put away a lot of it and, and so forth, the way that people were when royalty kind of thing started. So uh, the uh, it was started in order to, uh, to be able to help us all kind of give something back to uh, the, the people who'd been in the field a lot longer, the pioneers. It's expanded now, so, so sometimes we're helping. Uh, originally, I think it was started to help people who were my age, older than my age, really, or my age or older. Um, now I think that uh, sometimes we're helping people that are younger because, after all, not everybody's getting rich in comics nowadays, and we can sometimes be a kind of a, a temporary stopgap to help somebody, you know, catch his breath when uh, the props got knocked out from under him because. Uh, his series got canceled, or maybe he had an illness that prevented him from working, and of course, you know, he didn't have any money coming in during that time. And sometimes if people need a thousand or, you know, a few thousand dollars in order to uh, just help them get back on their feet. Uh, it can't be a permanent thing, but it can, it can help somebody uh, catch his breath. Uh, Mr. Thomas, it has been an absolute pleasure and a highlight uh, of our year talking with you. Uh, have a happy holidays. Thank you very much, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again in the future. Well, thank you very much. All right. Bye. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. And that will conclude our conversation with comics legend Roy Thomas. A big thank you to Mr. Thomas for taking time out of his very busy schedule to talk with us and for all the creators that we've talked with in the past month. Uh, Derek Robertson, Brian Polito, Tim Seeley, Denny O'Neill, and Roy Thomas were all fantastic guests. But the biggest thank you needs to go to the Around Comics listeners. Like I said at the beginning of the show, you guys have really stepped up in this holiday season and come through with some big-time donations for the Hero Initiative. Uh, So happy holidays and thank you from everyone at Around Comics. Okay, John. Hello. We're back again with another episode of the A to Z of British Comics. What letter are we on? We are on D, John. So what you got? Well, for D, for the A to Z of British Comics, I've got Dave Gibbons. Oh, he's Dave not Gibbons is. a real monkey. <laughs> he's not a monkey, no. Everybody <laughs> knows who Dave Gibbons is. He worked on Watchmen, didn't he? He broke into the British comic industry by working on horror and action titles for both DC Thompson and IPC Comics. Ooh. When 2000 AD was set up, Gibbons was brought in as an art director, and he also drew one of the original strips in the first issue of 2000 AD, Harlem Heroes. Yeah? Yeah. After leaving 2008, Gibbons became the lead artist on Doctor Who, drawing the main comic strip for most of the issues, from issue 1 until issue 69. That's being reprinted at the moment by IDW. 
Is that what they're reprinting? Yep. I thought it was a brand new Doctor Who comic. There is a brand new one, and they're reprinting the old ones. Ooh, there you go, Small World. <laughs> small World. Mm. And speaking of Small Worlds, Matt, yeah. Dave Gibbons lives in St Albans, which is the town that we're both from. Well, I'll be. Small World. Is a Small World. Gibbons is probably best known, though, for swinging in the trees, being a Gibbons. <laughs> for having long arms and bizarre mating calls. Yeah. Dave Gibbons, though, not real Gibbons. All right. In 1982, though, Dave Gibbons went to work for DC and was hired to draw Green Lantern. But oh. he's best known in the US for collaborating with Alan Moore on the 12-issue limited series Watchmen. Yes. Which uh, we'll probably do that when we come to W. We can't do Watchmen. It's not British, is it? Well, it's done by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. They're both British. All right. Well, we'll see. Let's see when we get there. Yeah, well, I'm sure there'll be some form of controversy over it. Controversy? Controversy. So, that's Dave Gibbons. He works in comics. He is D. I've got a whole list of well, He's done loads of stuff, John. Has he? Like what? He even Read one. Action comics. Nice. He only done the covers for Action Comics, so stay and get your hopes up. Oh, okay. He worked I won't go out and buy. Though. That's British. Yeah, that's yeah. He, he called you an arsehole. He did call me an arsehole once, but that's irrelevant. Okay, my D is Desperate Dan. Ooh. Ah, uh, C? No, D. Desperate Dan. Huh? Not C, D. No, it's D. Oh. D. Desperate Dan, he is a Wild West character in The Dandy. Oh. Which is a British comic book, much like the Beano. He first appeared in the comic in its first issue on the 4th of December 1937. Blimey. He is the world's strongest man, able to lift a cow with one hand. And even his beard is so tough, he has to shave with a blowtorch. You know that? I didn't know that. It's true. If you go to Dundee in Scotland, there is a statue of Desperate Dan in the city centre. Well, I'll be. There you go. That's how much Desperate Dan has had an effect on the British comic book industry, John. Yeah, Matt, can you tell me what is Desperate Dan's favourite food? Oh, you know, I know the answer to that. His favourite food is cow pie. Yes. Where he puts an entire cow in a pie. Yeah, and it's got his horns sticking out. Does it really? Yeah, if you look, it's got a picture of a pie. A cow's horns stick out the side. It's quite a small cow with big horns. A big pie. Right, in 2005... Desperate Dan stopped eating cow pie, Why? and they haven't been in the dandy ever since. Why not? That's political correctness gone mad, John. It is, because that was when Britain had mad cow disease outbreak. Oh, oops. And, obviously, there's an increase in vegetarianism. So, in a move that is, quite frankly, political correctness gone mad, he hasn't eaten a cow pie ever since. You think he'd be going hungry? What's his favourite food now, then? Uh, chips, chips and tea. Chips and tea, yeah. Can't he just eat beef pie? No, no, he can't. He can't, because of mad cow disease. But we don't have mad cow disease anymore. Yeah, but we might do. Well. Easy. Alright, so, uh, Desperate Dan is your D, then? Yeah. And my D was Dave Gibbons. Oh, uh, mine is much better. Oh, if you say so. Mm. You know what we'll do next week? What? E! No! <laughs> I can't! I've said, I've said I wouldn't do that again since I've been in rehab. <laughs> you shouldn't do it, you've got heart problems. No, it's right. right. So next week we'll do an E. Hooray! See you that then. Ta-da! And a big thanks to the quiet panelologists at work, our friends from across the pond. Remember to check out their podcast. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for comic books, or you can find them at the Comics Podcast Network site by going to comicspodcast.com or their own website, panelologist.com.
This portion of Around Comics is brought to you by Ape Entertainment. And now available from Ape is the Fablewood Anthology Volume 1. It's a lavish 144-page original graphic novel containing 13 complete fantasy stories and featuring the art of invincible artist Ryan Otley, as well as alumni from Flight and Pop Gun anthologies. Fablewood covers a variety of themes within the fantasy genre from slice of life to sword and sorcery. No fantasy fan should go without. For previews of some of the amazing art in the Fablewood Anthology and tons of other ape goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com. Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. You can find thousands of web comics online. And Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of webcomics. Today I'd like to recommend Leisure Town by Tristan Farnon. And look, before you pull up the site, let me just warn you. Go ahead and get your terry cloth towel and your soap ready because you'll want to take a shower after this. And don't be fooled by the bendy children's toy characters. This comic will make you feel dirty and morally bankrupt. But hey, you know, not all art has to be happy and positive. You know, maybe the best strategy for you would be to just embrace the filth that Mr. Farnon creates. Um, if you're a listener over the age of 21, you know, maybe go ahead and get a six pack or two or three or six and just go ahead and roll with the insanity that is Leisure Town. Uh, it is a way twisted photo comic and it primarily takes these bendy rubber toy animals and imposes them on highly elaborate photoshop backgrounds and don't buy into any of the stuff about it you know being somehow easy or cheat because it's not drawn I mean these scenes are highly elaborate and take a lot of time to create uh, this strip ran from 1997 to 2003 Mr. Farnon doesn't update anymore but the entire back catalog is there and there is quite a large body of work there are a lot of stories to check out uh some of the titles include pussy driven american masturbator dog mess and and if any of the following subjects appeal to you like blood explosions infidelity murder insanity then i highly recommend that you check check out leisuretown.com let me spell it out l-e-i-s-u-r-e-t-o-w-n.com uh, if you're not impressed by the intro gra- graphic, just go elsewhere. Um, and Mr. Farnon, if you happen to be listening, uh, the last Comics Art Forum here at the Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, your work came up with uh, some indie publishers that, that were speaking here. And, you know, let me just go ahead and recommend to any of you listening that, that might be thinking about putting together a webcomic or currently have a webcomic site. You want to make your contact information easy to find, or you want to include it. Um, and Miss, you know, Mr. Farnon, uh, you know, uh, his contact information is nowhere to be found. So if you're listening, uh, Tristan, uh, you can contact me here at Around Comics, or you can contact me through my email at SCAD. 
and uh, I can put you in contact with some people who are who are interested in maybe publishing your work. But for the rest of you listening, definitely check it out. The, this comic is so over the top. It's amazing. Uh, so for Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. Twice a month, John Mayo gives us a look inside the numbers of Diamond's top-selling titles. Here's John to tell us about Diamond's top 100 trade paperbacks. Here's a breakdown of the sales of the top 100 trades reported by Diamond for October 2007, based on what Diamond shipped to retailers during the month. The estimated total volume of the list was 282,000 trades, which is up by 22,000 copies from last month, and up by 29,000 copies from October 2006. At full cover price, this works out to an estimated value of $5,505,000, which is an increase of $1,016,000 from the previous month, and an increase of $313,000 from October 2006. The publisher with the largest percentage of the top 100 trades for October was DC Comics, which had 25.95% of the total units sold, with 24 items on the list. The top-selling item for DC Comics was Justice Volume 3 in Slot 2, with an estimated 9,000 copies. This was up 300 copies from the estimated total reported sales of the previous volume. Marvel Comics had the second highest number of total units with 70,000 copies, accounting for 24.85% of the total top trades sold in October. They did this with 25 different items on the list. The top selling item for Marvel Comics was Fallen Sun, Death of Captain America in rank 4 with an estimated 6,000 copies. Dark Horse came in with the third highest piece of the pie with 22.08% of the total units sold and had 19 different items on the list. The top selling item for Dark Horse was Buffy the Vampire Slayer Long Way Home in rank 1 with an estimated 8,800 copies. The remaining publishers accounted for the other 27.12% of the total sales of the top 100 trades. This sort of four-way split is very unusual. Usually it's a three-way split between DC, Marvel, and everybody else. For Around Comics, I'm John Mayo. John Mayo writes the Mayo Report 2007-08 Top Comics each month, which examines the sales estimates and market trends for comic books, graphic novels, and collected editions. He's also the host of the Comic Book Page podcast. You can find his articles at comicbookresources.com and his podcast and sales estimates charts at comicbookpage.com.
Each week, our own Tom Caters takes one of your questions and gives it the answer that it deserves. Remember that you can send your questions to Tom at AroundComics.com. And here is the answer man. Uh, last week, we talked to my girlfriend. Uh, I just want to let everyone know that uh, we're okay. Uh, the, we got over our sort of flash... Um, argument about whether or not he fights for soldiers. We moved on. We moved past those issues, and we've agreed never to talk about the Flash. Never to have her question why the Flash does what he does. So we've we've moved past that. But uh, it's interesting because we're on the topic of sort of social justice. You know, what role do superheroes play in the world that they live in? And uh, I sort of have a question that deals with that. So uh, let's go right to the question. This is from L. Dave, who asked, Dear Answer Man, that's me, why did U.S. agent take over for Captain America? Was Steve Rogers a coward and couldn't cut the mustard? Uh, I don't know because I didn't read it, so I had to do a little looking up. I had to do a little reading about the topic, and uh, I think Captain America, I think USA, U.S. agent, that's, that's a really hard name to say out loud, easy to read, uh, U.S. agent, became Captain America because Steve Rogers was a true patriot. Uh, he was asked to uh, sort of blindly serve the U.S. government, and Steve Rogers said no, uh, put on a black costume, which I guess is what people did at the time. If you didn't like what you were doing, you quit and put on a black costume. So he put on a black costume and called himself the Captain. Uh, I, uh, not as good of a name. Uh, I guess it would be easy to cover up you know, a tattoo that says Captain America, or, you know, uh, if you have any sort of personalized license plates, it's priority said Captain, so it's probably just a wise choice on his part just to change his name to that. Uh, U.S. agent was selected to take over for Captain America, and he was manipulated by the Red Skull and got his mind messed with and pretty much ended with uh, him fighting Steve Rogers and Steve Rogers turning him back towards good and then Steve Rogers retaking over as Captain America. Uh, the most interesting thing, though, and a little bit of reading I did about the character and the few things I saw is that uh, U.S. agent was uh, a little bit more violent. You know, well, Captain America was wearing the black outfit, but U.S. agent was, you know, John Walker. I actually haven't said his name so far, so I should probably say it. Uh, John Walker was uh, you know, a little bit rougher, maybe a little bit more uh, 90s type of hero, you know, get up in your face, you know, I'm sure he had a, some sort of long mullet flowing back underneath his, uh, his mask, as most characters inexplicably had in the 90s, was a long, flowing locks of hair, but, uh, I gotta say, it's, this is an intriguing idea to me, uh, one of the things I think that makes Captain America a really cool character is that, uh, not only does he sort of have to stand for a certain set of morals, but his name is attached to a very practical thing, America, which means it's attached to politicians, to things America does, to uh, decisions that people besides him make. So he has a weird dichotomy that maybe a lot of other characters don't have. I mean, Spider-Man isn't beholden really to anything in his name other than himself. You know, Superman isn't beholden to anything. Captain America, you know, he symbolizes an ideal of a country, but at the same time, he's at sometimes at the you know mercy of that same country. You look at something like Civil War, you know. Captain America can be a leader, but sometimes he has to act like a soldier. 
And sometimes good soldiers don't follow orders if they don't think they're correct. So, intriguing storyline. I was I didn't know anything about U.S. Agent. Now I'm a little intrigued. Might go read more on it. I might just become a huge U.S. Agent fan. I'm going to become a John Walker fan. Yes. It's going to be Flash and John Walker. And then when Sam asked me whether or not John Walker does anything for social justice, I'll say he, not only does he do stuff for social justice, but he kicks ass when he's doing it. So I'm going to get to work on that. Uh, you get to work on more questions. Send them to me at Tom at Around Comics. I'll try and answer them the best I can. I'll even, you know, I'll look stuff up. And I had to actually work a little bit on this one. Usually I'm a, I'm a bit of a sandbagger. I take, you know, someone asks me a question like, what's your favorite Flash? Well, you know, I think about that all the time without having to do the show. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch myself a little bit here. Do a little tougher. Do a little bit more digging. You know, get inside, you know, find the Captain America within me. Or the John Walker. Maybe I'm violent. Who knows? We'll see. And I'll talk to you next week. Now let's get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback releases. Here is Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall. Merry Christmas, everybody, and welcome back to this Monday's Trade 5 Report. These are for books shipping on Thursday this week due to the holiday, and they're going to ship on Thursday after New Year's as well. So just be aware of that before you go to the comic book shop on Wednesday. So let's start out with now. Let's start with Marvel this week, and we have coming out Daredevil by Frank Miller Omnibus Companion, the hardcover. This comes in a regular and variant edition. This is for fifty bucks and collects, well, everything that wasn't in the first Daredevil Omnibus, which would be Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man twenty-eight or twenty-seven and twenty-eight, Daredevil two nineteen and Daredevil two twenty-six through two thirty-three. Daredevil The Man Without Fear 1 through 5 and Daredevil Love and War. And in case you're wondering, there will be an Electra Omnibus by Frank Miller coming out in 2008. Look for that. Moving down from Marvel, Marvel Masterworks The Golden Age Human Torch Volume 2 the hardcover. That is variant number 88. This collects Human Torch 5B through number 8. Yes, there were two issue 5s back in the Golden Age. And this one is 5B. 5A was in the Volume 1, as you can imagine. This is for $55. Also, we have Essential Power Man and Iron Fist, Volume 1, collecting Power Man and Iron Fist 50 through 72 and 74 through 75. And in case you're keeping score at home, Luke Cage has two of his own Essentials, and Danny Rand has one. Uncanny X-Men Extremis, the trade is out, collecting Uncanny X-Men 487 through 491 for $14. Another Daredevil book out this week, Battling Jack Murdoch the Trade, collecting the four-issue miniseries there for 13. Fantastic 5, The Final Doom the Trade, collecting Fantastic 5 1 through 5 for 14. Powers Volume 11, Secret Identity the Trade, collecting Powers 19 through 24. Let's hope they double-check their spelling on this book this time. And finally, Marvel Masterworks, The Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 5, the hardcover. This is the variant 22. This is the second printing of that book. Over at DC, Showcase presents The Brave and the Bold, The Batman Team-Ups, Volume 2, The Trade, for 17 
collecting Batman Brave and the Bold 88 through 109. The Flash, Fastest Man Alive, Full Throttle the Trade, collecting The Flash 7 through 13, and a story from the DC Infinite Holiday Special number one. That is for $13. We also have a second printing of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the Black Dossier hardcover. And there's not a whole lot I can say in that book that hasn't been said in my own podcast last week. Down over at Dark Horse, we've got Star Wars, the 30th Anniversary Collection, Volume 11, Union, the hardcover, for 20 bucks. where Mara Jade marries Luke Skywalker. Only one more of these 30th Anniversary Collections are coming out. Over at Image, we've got The Walking Dead, hardcover, Volume 3. This is the signed edition for $59.99. As you may recall, the regular unsigned edition came out last week. Over at Devil's Due, we have G.I. Joe America's Elite Volume 4, Truth and Consequences Trade for $19. And finally, from Oni Press, we have Queen and Country, the Definitive Edition Volume 1, the trade for $20. I'm sure Chris will have something to say about this edition coming out this week. So that'll about do it for this Monday's Trade 5. Not a whole lot of news because, well, all the offices are closed. And there's not going to be a whole lot of news next week either. So I'm just going to be doing the release list next week as well. So everybody out there, have a safe and happy holiday this week. For Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at collectedcomicslibrary.com. And here's Tom Caters to let us know what's coming up in Single Issues this week. Hello, and these are the new releases for December 28th. That's right. Comics are coming out on a Friday this week. Uh, you can thank Santa Claus for that. And next week they'll be coming out on Friday. And you can thank Baby New Year for that. This is not a definitive list of every single thing that's coming out. Uh, this is just a few things that I've seen that maybe people might miss out on or gloss over or don't know what quite what's going on. There's definitive lists everywhere, so let's get right into it. we got DC Comics, 52 Aftermath, The Four Horsemen, uh, written by Keith Giffen, art by Pat O'Leaf. Uh, I've been loving this series so far. I was very surprised. I picked it up on a whim. Uh, the name sort of almost makes it seem second class. You know, who wants to read a book that's the aftermath of something? But he's, Keith Giffen's written a very good book about the big three Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, dealing with these sort of evil death and war gods. And Giffen does a great job of having those characters interact in interesting ways. Uh, we have Action Comics number 860, the third part of Jeff Johns and Gary Frank's Superman and the Legion of Superheroes storyline, which I have also been enjoying quite a bit. Uh, it's got two covers, you know, just buy one, buy an indie book with the other money. Uh, we got Death of the New Gods number four. Uh, Jim Starlin's project where he is killing all of the new gods, but he's doing it very well. It's a very interesting death. So, you know, if you hate death, don't read this. It's in the title. No one's going to live. Everyone's dying. We got Green Lantern Sinestro Corps Secret Files number one and Green Lantern number 26. After coming off the high that was the end of the Sinestro Corps War, we have ourselves a little Secret Files issue. Um, it's going to be a collection of new stories, sort of in the same vein as the Sinestro Corps 
uh, Tales of the Sinestro Corps that had been running through Green Lantern in the back. And I really loved all of those stories, and I thought they were kind of cool seeing all these different villains. So you might want to flip through this book, take a look at it, see if it's something that interests you, if you really enjoyed the Sinestro Corps. It is a little bit more expensive. It's $4.99, but it's a bigger book. Uh, Green Lantern 26 is the uh, next storyline after the Sinestro Corps War. It's Jeff John with art by Mike McCone. Uh, it deals with something called the Alpha Lanterns, so you're going to have to just wait and find out. we got Legion of the Superheroes number 37. We have the return of Jim Shooter to the Legion of Superheroes, which he hasn't written in an extremely long time. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I, I'm going to pick it up. I, I, while at times I enjoyed uh, the previous run uh, by Mark Wade, uh, I thought it got a little... Eh. It got a little boring, and uh, I ended up dropping it. They tried to include Supergirl. Didn't quite work. Uh, the art by Manipal on this, also, just he, the design on the characters looks amazing. So the art alone is probably going to be great. And I'm sorry if I butchered his last name, but we never hear what these people's names are. Uh, we got ourselves Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters, number four. Uh, this is another series I've been enjoying quite a bit. It's a... Uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, and Renato Arlen doing the art. Uh, it's a darker, sort of grittier take on uh, Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters, which I I've been intrigued by so far. Uh, let's move on to IDW. We have Badger Saves the World, number one. I gotta be honest, I, I picked up the um, Badger Bull one-shot, and I didn't like it. I thought the art was kind of off, There wasn't the humor was kind of off. Uh, Maybe Mike Barron can get this back on track, but uh, i got to be honest, I'm not excited about it. I'm going to take a look at it. I might get it, I might not. I uh, just wanted to point it out to everyone that you know, if he recaptures the magic, it's a great idea for a book. We have uh, Pax Romana. Well, let's move on to Image. we got Pax Romana number one from Jonathan Hickman of Nightly News fame. Uh, this is, uh, looks like it's going to be another... Great series by him. The design all looks fantastic. It's about time travel, messing with the past, all that good stuff. We got proof number three, the book about Sasquatch and other cryptoids, which I have been hyping big. Number three is coming out. You can still get the first two. I suggest grabbing it while you can. So let's move on to Marvel. We got Captain America number 33 as we continue the Steve Rogerless Captain America, which I have been loving. Uh, it's great that the actual character is not in the book, but the momentum is still strong. We got Captain Marvel, Volume 5, Number 2, written by Brian Reed with art by Lee Weeks. I was pleasantly surprised by the first issue. I believe the reprint of the first issue came out last week. Uh, you can still jump on board on this five-issue uh, miniseries. He, what they did is uh, they made Captain Marvel more interesting. You know? See no reason to kill him now. We got uh, ourselves a... Uh, Giant-sized Avengers special number one, which is going to be a mix. It's an Avengers-type of thought anthology. It's going to have new stories and reprints. Uh, if you're interested in that type of thing, you might want to page through it, though. You know, if it's a little too heavy on the reprints for you. It's also slightly more expensive, $4.99. We got, uh, I don't know anything about this, but the title alone says I might take a look at it. Hulk vs. Fing Fang Foom. I believe Peter David is involved in writing this. I don't know how this fits in continuity. But you have to love any time a giant dragon man in purple shorts fights a green man who wears torn purple jean shorts, I guess. I mean, I don't know what kind of pants he wears. So. 
that's a little bit of editorializing on my part. Uh, what else? We got Marvel Illustrated picture of Dorian Gray number one. I bring this up because we just spoke to uh, Roy Thomas uh, about this book, actually. Uh, it's written by Roy Thomas with art by Sebastian Fiumara. Uh, this is my favorite novel, actually, of all time. So I might actually take a look at this book and see how well Roy does a job of translating the humor of Oscar Wilde into the comic book. Let's hope he doesn't make it too classy. Uh, Ultimate Power number 9 is finishing up. I don't know what happened in it, but this is the end. Uh, we have X-Men First Class Volume 2 number 7. Uh, great series. Uh, the last issue was printed wrong, which I think they reissued, but hopefully I get the printing straight, straightened out for this one. Great, fun Jeff Parker book. Uh, also great art by Roger Cruz. I highly recommend it. Uh, let's see what else we have out in the world of comic books as I scroll down my page. Uh, from Kenzer and Company, we have Knights of the Dinner Table, number 134. Uh, I admit I have, uh, you know, I've, I've tried role-playing games. And uh, if you're into role-playing games and you've never heard of this book, uh, it's sort of a collection of comic strips with humor directed very much towards the role-playing game sort of culture. It also has news and stuff about role-playing games. I, I found it quite funny. Uh, it might be a little inside jokey at times, but hey, if you like it, you like it. We got Dan Dare number two coming up from Virgin Comics. Uh, Dan Dare number one picked it up uh, actually on the suggestion of iFanboy. Loved it. I'm going to be picking up the second issue as well. And it, let's see what else we got going on. I think that's that's everything I got marked out of interest. So. Those are releases for this week. Remember, if you go to the comic shop on Wednesday, you're just going to look like an ass because there aren't any books there, any new ones. So, you know, reschedule your life around Friday. Uh, for those of us who do shows on Fridays where we talk about the books, uh, we're going to be kind of screwed because we're going to get the books that day. So it'll be interesting, and I'll talk to you all next week. That'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussing the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at www.aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and ComicSpace. And if you are inclined to do so, you can leave us a review at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for the best comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again on next Monday for another edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. Girl, my love, baby, love you gone. I know you didn't love it, baby. I know.